Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. David Sachs is the author of The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. David is a writer, reporter, and speaker who specializes in business and culture. His book, The Revenge of Analog, was a number one Washington Post bestseller, was selected as one of Michiku Kakutani's top 10 books of the year for 2016 for the New York Times, and has been translated into six languages. He lives in Toronto. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the future is analog, how to create a more human world. It's my pleasure. I know that your son is home from school behind the couch today, so you clearly don't have time to read books, but I I appreciate (laughs) you taking the time to speak with me in between rounds of chicken soup delivery or whatever else it is. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) All been there. David, your book came recommended to me by so many people, so feel good about all the word of mouth that is that's wonderful to hear yes there's some books that like a lot of people i know somehow ping me about and this happened to be one of them so i'm like all right let's do it can't wait to hear (laughs) it's i am i'm honored to be here and thank you you know it's it's a funny thing as a writer like you put these ideas out in the world and really 
you never know how they land. You know, the sales info takes like six months to arrive. And if you don't land on the bestseller list immediately, and most of that's just taken up by Malcolm Gladwell and J.K. Rowling. like um, <laughs> Colleen Hoover. Yes, uh, yes, of course. Uh, you know, the Daniel Steeles. You really have no idea. It's like this void. So when someone's like, oh, I heard about your book from another human being, you're like, wait, what? Is it my mom? <laughs> how do you know my mom? Maybe you do. I don't think it was your mom, but it might have been. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> you never know. Okay. Talk to everyone about your book, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. How should we create a more human world? Tell us all about your book. Sure. This book is unabashedly a, a pandemic book. It's a pandemic memoir. It, it is a reflection in a very sort of directed way of the, those really intense months and years of 2020 and 2021 when all we had was digital. And the reason I sort of wrote about that was because I had written another book in 2016 called The Revenge of Analog. And that book looked at why we were seeing the return of things like brick and mortar bookstores, which I know you just opened, muscle tough, vinyl records, film cameras, you know, paper notebooks, right? Why were these things growing at a time when everybody had told us they were done, they were obsolete, they had no purpose anymore? And not only that, but they were driven by sort of younger people. And I kept coming up against this notion when I would go give talks or do interviews. No, no, no. But the future is digital. We know the future is digital or we're living in a digital world. And I kept questioning that assumption. And then all of a sudden it's March of 2020. You know, here I am living with my mother-in-law and like her house because it had more space with my kids and wife. And all of a sudden that digital future was here, right? You know, school, work, Passover, shopping, eating, any sort of culture I wanted to watch, any concert, any everything was digital. That digital future had arrived. Both my kids had their bar, my twin, my older twins, bar and bat mitzvahs on Zoom during the pandemic, FYI. I mean, you saved some money. I did. I upgraded the Wi-Fi. It was perfect. (laughs) Yeah, like that, you know, minus a DJ, like you're you're good. Their college is covered now. Um, (laughs) And mazel tov to both of them. Thank you, thank you. And that was it. The experience that I felt and most people felt was was a negative one. Like, if this is the digital future, what does it actually teach us? And I think as those weeks and months went on, I started reflecting on that. And those reflections and the sort of research behind what went on really forms the core of this book. So when I say the future is analog, and, and it it is really this sort of declaration against the assumption that the digital future is inevitable and it's where we're going and it's sort of the good thing. And I'm saying, look, we lived through that, right? We had this once in a history ability to road test and, and kick the tires of this future that we've been promised for decades, right? That, you know, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and everybody's getting up there and saying, hey, in the future, you know, you're going to go to school and go to work online. It isn't going to be amazing. And, you know, you're going to be able to just touch your phone and anything will be brought to you. And people are like, oh my God, that's incredible. And then all of a sudden you're sitting in your sweatpants. Doesn't matter if you have a beautiful library house like you have in Park Avenue or a small house in Toronto um, with a keyboard that I bought to play on during the pandemic and did it about three times. It's for sale if you want it. <laughs> I, I might, I might. It's all yours. As a bar mitzvah gift. For your <laughs> you know, that experience was 
unfulfilling for most people as a total sort of thing. There's not a lot of people who are like, you know what? This is great. I am still not leaving my house. I am happy to do everything online. I don't need to ride a bike again. I have my Peloton. I don't need to go to school. I'm happy with the virtual version. The number of people who still opt for that at this point in 2023 are a statistically insignificant number of people. And so what did that experience teach us about the not only limits of digital technology, but the value of analog. And when I say analog, I mean in the broadest possible sense of non-digital, the physical spaces, school, work, synagogue, bookstores, libraries, parks, you name it. But also, most importantly, the relationships that happen in those spaces between coworkers, between students and each other, between students and their teachers, between the barista that gives you your coffee in the morning uh, at the coffee shop around the corner from your house. All of those things were things we craved so much. And so I, the book is really unpacking what it is that we learned about the value of those things. And how then do we think about it going forward as new technologies like artificial intelligence and virtual reality come along and those who are selling them are saying, hey, this is the future. Like I'm having a debate in an hour with a guy who is a singularity travel consultant. And his whole thing is that in the future, travel is going to be virtual. That we are going to strap goggles under our eyes or there'll be lenses, contact lenses. And like, you don't need to go skiing in Colorado because we're going to bring Colorado to you, but you're going to be skiing down a mountain on the back of a whale or some other such acid trip. And we're having a debate about this, but there are the, still those people who are proselytizing and believing that, no, no, the inevitability of our future is inherently digital. And I'm saying, hold on. I think we learned about that. I, I know where that debate, I have a sense of where that debate <laughs> will end up. If I had to put money on one side or the other. There is a trade-off to some degree about productivity and connection, right? I feel like what you give up to order all your gifts online for a holiday is all the, you might do it faster, but you're giving up interacting with all the people, going shopping with people you love, being thoughtful in the things you give, but it might not be done as fast. So I feel like that is the underlying tension of the whole digital versus analog thing in my mind. Right. We can now do almost anything online, right? There, there, there are many activities. And I think we saw this in the pandemic. What was amazing was how quickly we were able to transition mm -hmm. so much of our lives and our economy and our sort of services into a digital version, right? Like, it's incredible that, you know, by March 30th, 2020, like 90% of corporations and companies and businesses didn't just collapse and go bankrupt. Like, yeah. it was just kind of like, oh, okay. I guess our ad firm, entire city government, military, like, all of it. Actually, yeah, everybody can do this at home in their pajamas. <laughs> you know, everyone kind of figured it out and it was relatively simple and the technology already existed and like we sort of made it work. But I think what we saw the difference is because you can do it, it may be technically possible, but the difference between something being technically possible and desirable in every kind of circumstance is very different. And that gap took us a while to realize. Mm -hmm. And I think now it's the thing that we're still reckoning with. And so that question of digital convenience versus a harder to pin down kind of qualitative aspect of the analog experience is the great debate. And I'd say sort of task of our time as we figure out the future. And this conversation is a great example of it, right? 
through this incredible technology, we are able to have this conversation across, I don't know, you're in New York, right? Like, you know, 500 miles of Great Lake and tundra or whatever it is. Uh, I'm here in Toronto. (laughs) It costs us nothing, right? Maybe you buy the Zoom premium subscription because you do a bunch of these. So it costs you 20 bucks a month or whatever. It's high quality. It's good. It's very convenient. I am in my sweatpants. I'm also in my sweatpants. Yep. As we should be. Yeah. Those are lessons we all learned, right? And yet, if you and I had met in New York, and we had sat down face to face with a microphone and recorded this conversation in your lovely living room library with your son and your beautiful dog, right? Hanging out behind the couch. We would have had a much different conversation. And I bet it would have been a richer conversation, a more memorable conversation, because we would be two human beings, two physical creatures speaking in the same space in the way that we've evolved to do. And so the convenience of the experience in this case is wonderful. Probably wouldn't have happened if you were like, okay, well, if you're ever in New York, come and do it. I'm like, all right, well, how much is a flight and how much is a hotel? And, uh, you know, can I leave my kids and blah, 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 blah versus this. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about the digital future and and people do saying, no, this is it. This is all you need. And I think what we saw was that when this was just nine hours a day of doing this, you can do it. It might be more economical. It might be more convenient, but it doesn't necessarily make for a better conversation and it doesn't add up to something that makes you feel more human right it it takes away if you're sitting inside all day in your sweatpants having these digital conversations on the same flat piece of glass day in and day out right there's there's a form of incarceration inherent in that yeah i think uh before the pandemic i did all my interviews here in person People did come over and it was really nice. They would come over. I would have to budget double the time in my day. Right now I budget half an hour, but then I would budget an hour and people would come over and we'd like hang out in my kitchen and have coffee. And like often my husband was around saying hello. We were chit-chatting about whatever. And then we would come up and do the podcast and then we would like chit-chat and take a picture and then they would leave. And that was amazing. So I did fewer, but they were... They were the same length conversation, but yes, there was, it was slightly different. I like to think I'm such a good interviewer that my conversations on Zoom are just as good now, but <laughs> I would obviously much rather have people in person. But coffee and cake, coffee, coffee. and cake, Yeah. right? What's the value of that? Yeah. On the, you know, the dollars and cents of it. Oh, like, look how much more profitable your podcast is because you're not spending, I don't know, $200 a year on Entenmann cakes or Zabars. <laughs> I actually have a crumb. My family, my uh, my husband's family has a crumb cake business that I helped like scale right before the pandemic. Yeah, it's called Nini's Treats. You can get it on Gold Belly. So we actually have some downstairs. You would have had crumb cake, but anyway. Well, this is just, you're just torturing me. Okay. Well, next time you're in New York, next time you're in New York, I'll have some crumb cake here and uh, we can do a, a, a postscript or something. I'm going to write another book specifically for that purpose. <laughs> <laughs> An elegy for crumb cake. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything, it might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help. And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. You know, it's again, it's like, let's just get really big, right? human existence. Why are we here? What is the point of it all? You know, like truly a philosophical thing Mm -hmm. as a writer, as somebody hosting a podcast about books and building a, has a media company, now a bookstore about books. Like, is it about selling books? Is it about selling ads? Is it about building this sort of large scalable business? Is it about me selling a bestseller? There's some part of it that is doing it, but a large part of the reason why we do this um, the large part of why you wrote books, I imagine, and, and other people write books and that, you know, all the potential for failure and, and the ego ride and all that is like the pleasure of those things, the pleasure of those inefficiencies. You know, I love going on book tour. Uh, this book tour, I had a stop. I had two things in the West Coast between Seattle and Portland. And I told my publicist, I'm like, I don't want to fly. I'm flying every single day on this book tour. Can I get a train? And I took a four-hour train to the Pacific Northwest. Like, if you haven't taken a train in a while, it's pretty great. This was like a double-decker thing. Yeah, it was, it, I mean, it's exactly the Orange Express. It is Amtrak. But just looking out at the kind of rainy cascades and passing by all these things for four hours, like, there was this luxury of that experience. And then to be able to go to these bookstores and cultural centers and have these talks with, you know, 50... 40 people. I had three people knitting at my events. I guess it's a demographic thing. I spoke at a typewriter store. None of that fits into the economic calculus of what I'm doing. And yet the richness of that experience is all in its physicality. It's all in the analog Mm -hmm. nature of it. I'm ranting. I'm going to just... No. I mean, I don't think though that anybody necessarily starts out being a writer for the money. You know, you could be a banker. Like, if that's really the goal, there are th- there are other professions that are much any, more. Any, literally any or- other profession. 
<laughs> maybe not any, but many, many, maybe not any. But I don't think that when people go on book tour, it's all about sales anyway. And I don't do double the podcasts now for the revenue. I I just do it because I'm trying to like get more books out into the world and help people. It's not it doesn't help my, in fact, there's a theory that it might even like detract that maybe people want less podcasts than I give, but I'm like, I don't care. So, cause you never know what people are going to respond to or what they need to hear. But anyway, I love the train idea. I feel like if I took a train, I would be on my computer the whole time and miss the whole thing. So you have to like make the decision though. Do I want to spend four hours looking out the window versus like working on a flight, right? Oh, Isn't no, it more that? On the train. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, I read some news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I responded to some things and I think there's that that balance, right? Of like, yeah. we can always be on, we can always be doing something productive online. Yeah. But if we do that all day, every day, what does that add up to, right? right. What does it give us? What right. is, what is the end goal of that? Because we've seen that we, it will just fill and occupy any space that we have. Right. And we tried that early on in the pandemic. We tried all day school and you know, going from virtual school to yeah. balancing your virtual work to Let's do let's do a concert. Let's do a baking class. Let's do a, yeah. a church service. Let's you know go do this tour of of a city or whatever. And and after a while, you're like TV, computer, phone, iPad. You know, in the circle, you didn't feel better. You felt depleted in right. a way. Yeah. So what is that? What is that balance? So in the I totally agree. But I wouldn't necessarily write a whole book about it. So why is this your thing? Why did you write a book about it? Why are you so passionate about it? And like, how did you get here? Well, I'm a writer. So it's what I do. Every time I'm like, oh, I should maybe think about something else. You know, maybe I should do a podcast. Maybe I should do like a film. And someone's like, well, you should write the book first. And then it's like, oh, okay, fine. This is what I know how to do. This is my fifth book. So it's it does come come easily to me. And actually this started out as a conversation about a podcast with a podcast company and ultimately didn't go forward due to contract stuff or rights or whatever. But I think there was this, to me, urgency about it. And whenever I write a book, it's it's a way to answer some sort of nagging question or feeling or thing that I keep coming back to, right? And so... Each book that I've written has been some version of that. My first book was about Jewish delis. And it started in, in university as a paper. And it's like, why, why, where are all the Jewish delis that I used to grow up going to? They're all closing. Why is that happening? And that question kept coming back to me as I was a young freelance journalist in South America. And it's like, maybe I should pursue this. Maybe I should write a book on this. And then every other book that I've written has been some sort of version of some nagging question that I can't quite answer and I want to find the answer to. And that challenge of this of saying, yes, 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 you're, you know, you believe analog is having this sort of moment, but it's inevitable the future is is digital. It really came to a head at that time, right? It, it was something I was thinking about beforehand and really leading up right to this sort of onset of the pandemic when all of a sudden everything was fully digital and you would turn on CNBC or CNN or, you know, read the news and LinkedIn. Everyone's like, this is it. There's no going back. This is the new normal, right? There's no, no one's ever going to an office again. You know, kids are going to be learning from schools. This is going to be this quantum leap in education. Restaurants will be done. Like, no, we're, we're just going to order gold belly caviar, Uber Eats, whatever you want to call it. Like, it's just plastic bins of pad thai are our inevitable destiny. And I think 
the way I answer those questions is by diving in and wrestling with that idea over the course of a couple hundred pages over a year. May not be the best way to do things, but the only way. But how did you become a writer? Like, did you grow up in Toronto? Uh, like, what's your... Yes. Where did you... Yes. I grew up in Toronto. I mean, I've always loved reading. My parents used to send me Newsweek to summer camp as well as Archie's. <laughs> Where did you go to summer camp? Camp Walden, Ontario. Okay. One of the many... Camp Walden's, truly original name. And I, I love the news. I, I, I wanted to be a journalist. I never wanted to be sort of a novelist or anything. And I really started right out of university. I didn't study journalism. I studied history, but I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And so I started off by writing articles. I lived in South America for a number of years. I wrote for every type of publication. I wrote about news. I wrote about business. I wrote about travel, whoever would buy something. And then had the idea for my first book and figured out how to write a book proposal and sell it. And that was just sort of it. It's like 20 something years later, it's it's continued along the same vein of like, I have an idea. Could it be an article? Can I sell it as a book? Okay, here we go. Do this again, blah, 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 blah. And so I sort of stumbled into it, I think as many people did. But I'm fortunate to have been able to do it as my living, you know, all these years. That's awesome. How old are your kids? My kids are nine and six. Um, my son said he wanted to be an author the other day. And I was like, oh. let's just, let's, is there a junior engineering program we could put you in? Like, <laughs> you oughtn't go through what I've gone through. So. <laughs> I like rejoice when, when they say they might want to be authors. I'm like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But it's like, just so you know, let's, let's pre-work some disappointment here yeah. into you. That's true. That's true. Well, at least I feel like I could help set the stage for that. That's, yes. I mean, se- I know a few second-generation authors, second-generation media people, and it's amazing. Like, I have a lot of friends who's like, oh, their parents are in finance, they're in finance. Their parents are teachers, they're teachers. Like, the people who are in media, like, it, it'll be interesting when the second-generation podcasters come around. That's true. That's like true. My father was a podcaster, and his father yeah. was a podcaster. <laughs> All Mother. the way back to the Yiddish podcast theater. <laughs> Um, I think you should have a podcast, by the way. Why don't you have a podcast? You know, someone has to be the one journalist and writer that doesn't have a podcast. All right. What I recently started was a newsletter substacky thing. Mm-hmm. So I spoke a few weeks ago at a typewriter store in Philadelphia. Philly Typewriter, not to pump their business, is America's and actually the world's premier typewriter store. It began as this passion project of a guy, Brian Kravitz, who repairs a specific IBM type of typewriter. And these other people came along and and got into the business with them. And they restored typewriters to museum quality, like original everything. They take these things apart, cannibalize eight typewriters, build into one. And they gave me, as thanks for speaking there, a typewriter, which I lugged to New York for my book event there and like put in the overhead compartment on Air Canada to fly home. (laughs) This thing weighs like 40 pounds. And so now every week, every Monday... I bang out a single page, one and a half spaced of writing, and then just take a photograph of it and, you know, type it out and correct whatever horrible spelling there is. And so that's my venture into the world of things. There you go. See, the, the future is digital on your head. <laughs> that's a great Still in his pajamas. <laughs> oh, I have, um, where is it? I have my, my grandmother's typewriter is right there. Have you ever used it? It doesn't have any ink. You know, it's like, doesn't, it needs a new... You can get, you can order that. It's actually, the, the those things are quite easy to order. If, if really? The rest of the, if the keys that. work. Yeah, the keys work. What's interesting, and this gets into the sort of 
the heart of the analog thing. Like people are like, oh, it's a, you know, you're just doing this as a sort of trick or whatever. Like it's a gimmick. It's like actually what people find, and 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 I think this is something that's, you know, I get into a little bit in the book, but it becomes inherently obvious when you're doing it is when you make a process or a space sort of non-digital, right? You have the conversation in person. You go into to the office versus working from home. You use paper and pen to do something versus doing it on software. Or in my case, you you type for the first time since you were a child on a typewriter. The limitations of it, like you can't backspace, you can't delete stuff, you have to keep moving forward, is actually this incredibly liberating thing. It changes your process. And by doing that, you get an entirely different result. Better or worse, it's sort of up to you. But it's very liberating in that way. And I think this gets back to sort of what I was trying to get at in the book and, and, and explore in all these areas. Of like when we talked about the new normal, we talked about the digital future. People saying, no, 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 this is going to be great. You're going to be able to work from home. You can be able to work from thing. It's, it's going to be the same. And on the face of it, it is. It's like, oh, you and I are having a conversation. You're saying words. I'm saying words. Yeah, I'm answering your questions. You're doing this, you know, right? Maybe we do that in person. But it's not, there are differences. And those differences at the end of the day, and especially over time, actually make a different thing. And I think what we owe ourselves to do is kind of run these little experiments in our lives. Of saying, okay, I'm now I'm going to try. I'm going to try the digital version of this. I'm going to try the analog version. I'm going to see what works best for me, because um, each of us have those different needs. And I think it's naive to say, well, the digital one is going to be the better one because it's made by Silicon Valley, or it has more money behind it, or it's newer, or it's sleek. Well, I'm about to go do a totally analog thing, which no digital device can replicate, which is packing my kids for a trip. So I'm going to go back to the analog world for that. But thank you so much. This has been really fun, David. And I hope to meet you in person. And thank you for this book. And I wish you luck on your debate. And yeah. Send me the um, the model of it or take a picture and I'll, I'll, okay. I'll ask the guys at the typewriter store if they have the ink for it. Okay. Um, I'll get it for you. It, it's fun. It's, you know, I, like I wouldn't want to type every single thing on it, but it's it's not just some cool thing to do. Like it's, it's a tool like paper and pen and anything else. Um, so thank okay. you. Thanks for this. Thanks for this conversation and having me on. Good luck with packing and your kids' latest viral illness. <laughs> Always um, something. Always in something. the endless, endless reality of our lives. Yes, indeed. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.